Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast from Saskatchewan, Premier Scott Moe. On the rail blockades and on the spread of the coronavirus, COVID-19, Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious diseases specialist from Alberta, Michelle Rempel-Garner, conservative member of parliament. On the Buffalo Declaration, Alberta looking for respect from the rest of this country. Professor Ken Coates, international indigenous issues expert on the rail blockades. And from Manitoba, Michael Zwagstra, teacher, op-ed writer, author, says Ontario's teachers' unions are supporting illegal action. Some of what you'll hear on the podcast this time. Rail blockade continues. The impact grows more and more. Um, You spoke with uh, your fellow premiers. You called a conference call as the chairman of the Council of the Federation. You called that conference call last Wednesday. And uh, you spoke then at the time, or you tweeted about a lack of federal leadership. The next evening, you had a conference call, all the premiers, with the prime minister. Where do we stand, Premier Mo, at this juncture today? Where do we stand with this with this blockade, and what do you want to see done? Well, it, need, it needs to end, um, the, the, and, and it would be my hope that the uh, the folks that are blocking the rails would actually uh, take that down, and, and the offer is there for, for dialogue with the federal government, uh, but only if they remove uh, the blockades that are impacting Canadians from, from coast to coast. Uh, we brought uh, the premiers together last week uh, by request of a number of premiers um, out of that conversation that we had. Uh, there was a, a couple of things. Uh, first was... Uh, was uh, unanimous consent that these barricades do need to come down and that we need to have a first minister's call of which we were able to have uh, the very next day. And I, I was somewhat hopeful with respect to the prime minister's comments after that call as he went out uh, in the media the day after and really reflected the, the narrative of our call where uh, using language such as the barricades need to come down, the rule of law needs to be followed and uh, um, it, it, it is patience of, of Canadians is is really running out and uh, so you know my hope at this juncture is when we start this next week here that these these barricades are down and our economy is allowed uh, to function again and uh, if it isn't I uh, that would be just tremendously disappointing I think for for all Canadians. Are you disappointed that the RCMP did not take action? I, I spoke yesterday with former British Columbia Premier Ujjal Dosanjh who pointed out that the RCMP doesn't need to go to a court and get an injunction to take action they are uh, empowered to do that. I, I agree, and, and we see uh, really what is a, a problematic trend, if you will, uh, with uh, law, law enforcement at all levels, we have provincial police, municipal police, and, and RCMP, um, that at times will uh, uh, not enact, uh, uh, not even the laws per se, um, but uh, not enact a, a court order. And I, I've said many times over the course of the last week that uh, legislators and elected members make the create the laws. Uh, the courts interpret those laws, and our our law enforcement agencies uh, enforce those laws. Again, politicians don't direct them as to how, but uh, that's at their discretion. But the discretion as to whether or not they enforce the laws is is not at is not theirs. Uh, that is the expectation of. The government of Saskatchewan, for sure, and I would say uh, the vast majority of Canadians expect the same. Premier, when you and I spoke last weekend, uh, you pointed out 
that you didn't have rail disruptions in Saskatchewan. But now we know that uh, these disruptions, wherever they are, and they're springing up in different places. You had one in Saskatoon yesterday. I don't know if it's still right. ongoing. Um, but but it is affecting your province. It is affecting all Canadians. And uh, what what specifically is, is happening to the people in your province? Well, the, the impact is large here. Uh, we have, I, I spoke with a significant-sized exporter the other day that exports around the world. He has, uh, you know, uh, over 30 containers that are, are caught in transport. Uh, our exports of our agri-food products, our potash products, uh, uh, never mind uh, the imports. I talked with uh, an energy, a uh, fellow in the energy business uh, earlier this week as well, where he is waiting for some rather specialized equipment that is waiting at port uh, and should be loaded on a train and brought out here. So he's uh, trying to figure out how he can continue with his business um, um, with, you know, without this very specialized equipment that he needs. So it, it's impacting our economy. Um, also has the, 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 the challenge of impacting our economy on a little longer term basis with respect to not supplying our customers um, and, and not being that reliable supplier that, you know, 10 years ago we were regarded as, and, and we've had a number of challenges just this year, but in the last half a dozen years for sure that have started to impact that reputation. So we have to be uh, very, very careful here and, and uh, in, in how we, uh, you know, manage this to ensure that we aren't affecting Canada's reputation as we move forward. If the, essentially the uh, demand of the Prime Minister that the, finally, that the barricades must come down, if that isn't heard or listened to, is there opportunity for provincial leaders like yourself to circumvent the federal government and speak directly with hereditary chiefs and First Nations? Well, we'll, we'll see where this goes. There, there's a number of options. And the first and foremost option that I hope, and I think many do, is that it, it comes to a peaceful resolution and those involved to remove the blockades for the greater good of, of all Canadians, including uh, uh, people from their home community. Uh, the second is that ultimately uh, the OPP or a combination of the OPP and the RCMP understanding uh, there's multiple blockades are not just in Ontario across this nation, that the RCMP has a role uh, to play in uh, in coordinating um, how these are dealt with across Canada. And last I checked, uh, we still are a nation. Uh, we aren't quite a notion yet, Roy, as uh, Blaine and I had talked about a number of months ago. But, you know, here, here's the irony in, in what's occurring here when we talk about reconciliation. And, and where I go when we talk about reconciliation with our Indigenous uh, communities, Indigenous people, is is economic reconciliation, working with our, our communities and individuals on uh, ensuring that that uh, they they can become economically sustainable, uh, engaging in 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 the in the resource uh, development that we have in Saskatchewan, and we have excellent examples of that in the forestry industry, in the potash mining industry, with some of the procurement uh, in in our mining industry. The chemical itself uh, has a tremendous record when it comes to engaging uh, the indigenous people and in indigenous communities, and and in order for that to happen, we need our rail transport. We need this LNG uh, gas line uh, to, in order to uh, engage engage our, not only our Indigenous communities in an economic sense, but engage all Canadians and, and really benefit all Canadians. Yeah, and the Indigenous communities along that line, along that gas, uh, gas link, uh, pipe of the LNG line, are in favor. They, they're, they're, they've, they've signed off. They're, they want it. All supportive, and I suspect uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, first and foremost, is likely there is an economic benefit to the people that live in their communities. 
Um, likely, uh, they have realized that this is a gas line that can go a tremendous uh, uh, way in reducing our global greenhouse gas emissions, thereby uh, being good for uh, for our environment as global citizens. Uh, you know, most certainly, uh, they have signed off uh, for. Uh, for the reason that the company uh, that is building uh, the gas line has engaged with their communities over uh, the last five or six years, is my understanding. So um, this is a little bit perplexing that we're at this state and a little bit perplexing that it is uh, taking this long to uh, uh, get us back to uh, some sense of normalcy, if you will, uh, for our, our Canadian economy, really. Yeah. Premier, thank you. It's always good talking to you. Thank you for the time today. Great, Roy. You have a wonderful weekend. And you, Premier Scott Moe from Saskatchewan, of course. And uh, he is the chair of the chairman of the Council of the Federation, and that is the uh, all of the provincial premiers combined. Uh, there's one other thing I want to say here. I was just reading a, a story a little earlier today, and you can also see the uh, that information on the West Block on Global News, uh, Global Television with Mercedes Stevenson where a uh, British Columbia MLA, who is also First Nations, has said that there are instant, have been instances where First Nations people who have nothing to do with this dispute uh, are being um, unfairly uh, treated when they go out in the community. So that we cannot have. Um, these are not people who are convenient targets for anybody's anger. But this issue has to be resolved. It has to be taken care of, and it has to be done quickly. And the leadership issue goes right back to the Prime Minister of Canada. It goes right back to Mr. Trudeau. And when he assembled his incident response team, I think that's what it's called. I tweeted about it earlier. What have they done since they got together six days ago? What have they done? I tweeted out, it's fine. I mean, can we at least know who... Deliver the donuts. Tick tock, tick tock. Time is running out. Dr. Isaac Bogosh is back with us, infectious diseases physician and scientist, at Toronto General Hospital and the University of Toronto. Dr. Bogosh, as always, thank you very much for the time. And the fact that we have COVID 19 spreading to many countries, sometimes without being able to identify how it began in that country, does that suggest our global system of halting this virus from expanding and possibly coming a pandemic may not be, well, we may not be able to do that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that uh, we saw this massive public health initiative in, in China, I, and, uh, you know, they were restricting travel directly to about you know, 70 million people and then indirectly to about 700 million people, about 10% of the world's population. And this really bought the rest of the world some time. And this gave the rest of the world, at the end of the day, probably a few weeks to really scale up their efforts to, to prepare for uh, cases of this. But, you know, it, the, this talk about containment in China and, you know, this talk about the window being more and more closer or sorry, closer and closer towards the closed uh, end of the spectrum is certainly is certainly accurate, as, as the head of the World Health Organization has suggested. Some people say the opportunity is closed. And, you know, certainly we've seen widespread transmission in, you know, South Korea, in, in Japan. We've seen a lot of cases in northern Italy and, of course, Iran as well. And, you know, you just when you start to see more and more cases in more and more parts of the world that are 
geographically pretty far from each other, you have to be prepared that there's going to be other other cases popping up elsewhere as well. Should we be adjusting our behaviors in this country? Uh, no, I mean, you know, I, I really think that uh, in Canada, we've stayed one step ahead of the game. And uh, I know some people can quickly criticize, you know, some uh, some efforts. But, but like, quite frankly, I think Canada and, and the provinces have done very well so far in, in detecting cases and also in ruling out cases and providing, you know, top-notch care to the nine or so people that we, we've had uh, uh, detected so far. But, you know, like any other system, our system uh, has, has limits. And uh, I'm not saying we're going to test our system to the limits, but I am going to, I, no one would be surprised if there are more and more cases exported from the countries that are known to have this infection. No one would be surprised if all of a sudden another country pops up and they say, oh, you know what, it looks like we have a lot of this infection here. You, you can sort of start to see the pendulum swinging in the direction where we're going to see more wide-scale global transmission, and certainly that, that translates to more imported cases in Canada. When you and I first started to speak, um, we, we were finding, and you were telling us that a significant percentage, the, vast, the significant majority of people were recovering from uh, dealing with this COVID-19, if I remember correctly what you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that still the case, or are yeah. things? And I ask you this because there's a, there is a story that I saw, and I can't corroborate this, but I saw a story of a Chinese man who was determined to be free of the virus, but seems to have caught it a second time. And if that's the case, it brings the entire issue of a acquired immunity into question. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm pretty skeptical about that. I mean, uh, in all fairness, I, I think that uh, the there's some very solid emerging literature it's pretty high quality that really demonstrates that truly most people uh, are going to have a mild illness that number really stands at around 80 percent right now uh it might grow when we have a much greater appreciation of people that are really not even sick enough to come to medical care you know uh but but the the point is that certainly most people who get this infection will have a mild but of course, that's not to say that some people can't get very sick. Of course they can. There's been over 2,000 deaths with this infection. And some of the data that really shows, you know, who is more likely to have a, a rougher uh, infection are those over the age of 65 and those who, with underlying medical conditions. Um, and now, that's not to say if someone's over 65 or someone has underlying medical conditions, they're going to have a tough, uh, a tough ride with this infection. It just says, you know, these are, these are probabilities. And those individuals are more likely to have, uh, you know, an illness that might require, uh, you know, seeking medical care and maybe even hospitalization. But the vast majority of people who have had this really don't have that severe an illness. That doesn't take anything away from the global efforts to to really curb the spread and to prevent people from getting it. It's just sort of a a greater appreciation of what the clinical spectrum of illness is. So uh, if I can ask you then about Canada and Canadian preparedness, what are we doing in Canada to prepare for eventualities? Do we have sufficient numbers, large numbers of isolation hospital beds ready? Do we have antivirals available? Are we, yeah. are we taking that kind of preparatory action now? Yeah, certainly. I think there's a lot of work that's going on behind the scenes. And, uh, you know, at the public health level, at the hospital level, at the laboratory level. And uh, certainly there are preparations to scale up for potentially more cases. Uh, that are imported, and even the potential that there's locally acquired cases in Canada as well. Uh, and, you know, there's also a little bit of, uh, 
you know, there's not a lot of silver linings in this story, but one of the silver linings, if we could think of it as such, is that, you know, this is happening now during the very tail end of our influenza season in Canada. And certainly during, you know, December, January, February, when we're seeing a lot of influenza cases in Canada, the hospitals are busy. And uh, certainly people require some isolation uh, rooms. Certainly people require uh, uh, respiratory support with uh, supplemental oxygen. Some people require intensive care level care as well. Uh, And the fact that this is now starting to scale up, that the COVID-19 is really starting to scale up globally, and this does not coincide with our influenza season, this is coinciding with the tail end of our influenza season, means that we'll probably have more capacity if there is an onslaught of patients that require hospitalization and supplemental oxygen and and maybe even intensive care unit level care. So, I mean, not that much of a silver lining, but it is, it is, it is helpful. Mm -hmm. It really is. I don't want to just be uh, Mr. Negative here, but I have to ask you the questions that uh, I think most people want answered. Mm -hmm. And that is the word pandemic. Uh, mm-hmm. comes up. It comes up again and again. And I know there's I actually saw something. There's going to be a television replay of some pandemic series that scared <laughs> scared the hell out of me the first time I saw it. So I'm not going to watch it this time. But when it is there, are we on the cusp of a p- pandemic? And if yeah. we are, would you please tell us what would that consist of? Sure. So, I mean, some people are using the P word now. Some people are just holding off before starting to use it. But essentially, all a pandemic means, uh, a pandemic actually doesn't tell you anything about what's circulating or the severity of what's circulating. It just tells you the geography of what's circulating. And all it means is that you've got widespread transmission in multiple parts of the world. And, you know, having one unique focus of infection is no longer the case. There are There would be cases in multiple, multiple parts of the world. Now, certainly we see... Uh, pretty impressive numbers in South Korea, Japan, Iran, and Italy, and of course, China as well. Uh, So some people have started to use that term. I think if we're not using that term now, we're inching towards using it. Um, and, 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 you know, does it change anything? I mean, I really think that, you know, the messaging from the very beginning has been all effort should be to contain this in China. But the, the, the second part of that sentence is, but we have to be prepared for the scenario that it's not. And now, of course, we're really gearing into the second part of that statement where we're preparing for the scenario where this is not contained in China, as we're seeing more and more cases pop up throughout the world. And certainly, if we're not using the term pandemic today, we may very well chat next week and be talking about it then. Michelle Rempel Garner joins us. On the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. It's been a while since we've spoken, Michelle. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Uh, so one way or another, Albertans will have equality. I gather that's the last line of the Declaration. Walk us through the Declaration. What's the nucleus? For people who have heard, maybe heard Buffalo Declaration, I've heard a few news stories, but don't really know what it's about. Well, it's an acknowledgement of the fact that um, our region of the country has never been an equal partner in Confederation. And because of systemic structural inequities uh, that go back to, uh, you know, the founding of the provinces, the way that the purchase of land went without consultation, um, the, you know, the history of our provinces with the National Energy Program, uh, the concessions that we had to make in the patriation of the Constitution, these systemic inequities 
make it unable for our, our provinces to have a fair shake. And what happens, the symptoms of those inequities are things like the severe downturn that we've seen in our economies uh, over recent years because of governments that are coming in uh, that, that have very different ideologies uh, as opposed to uh, the people in our provinces. I, I think that we have been treated like a colony. Um, equalization is an issue. And I think, you know, I, I was in the Harper government um, and I've gone through, you know, I've seen a lot over the last four years. I think Prime Minister Harper, you know, the, the reforms that he made, he kind of thought that no future government would ever stray away from the equal footing that a lot of provinces had been put on, where it was like, you know, decisions have to be in the best interest of the entire country. We were proven wrong by that, by Justin Trudeau, within the first few months of his mandate. A lot of the gains that were made they were tempor- under Harper were temporary. They were repealed. And here we are today. So I think that, and, and my colleagues think that, you know, yes, we have to argue against the uh, punitive policies of the Trudeau Liberal government, but, you know, we are underrepresented in, in, in Parliament. Uh, we are, you know, th- there are many things that need to change uh, with regard to constitutional reform in order for Confederation to be sustainable. So this was an attempt to, you know, just just stop sort of the consensus of the status quo, that somehow if government changes, uh, that everything's going to be fine. Uh, my argument and the argument of others would be that uh, the stri- political strife of government in Ottawa shouldn't be the, the, the sole determinant on whether or not an entire region of the country gets a fair shake. There needs to be major reforms. And, like, look, I this is only a starting point. The document that we put forward was very lengthy, historically researched, but it was meant to spur discussion. People will agree with parts of it, all of it, maybe none of it, but we have to have this conversation for Confederation to be sustainable. It's that this is, I have been struggling with how to best serve my constituents who are severely out of work, who um, have asked me to fight for them. I know many of my colleagues in the region feel the same way, and this is our attempt to do that. Uh, It's not sort of a traditional attempt, I know that, um, but these are not traditional times, and these are not times for politeness or acceptance of the status quo. It's time to fight, and it's time to uh, start looking at serious structural change. It would be very irresponsible for me to look 20 years down the road and know that I did nothing to attempt to change it for my successor uh, and to have them fight the same fight that I'm fighting today, much as my, my predecessors were fighting the NEP. Something has to change, and that's what the declaration is about. Is it frustrating to you to have to explain that to the rest of the country? Yes. Um, the experience that I had over the last two years, I, you know, I'm a senior member of the Conservative Caucus. I traveled extensively throughout the country uh, on the lead-up to the campaign and during the campaign. You know, I was in well over 100 ridings um, across the country, and it was deeply, there was sort of a moment where I realized that the only way that I could speak for the voices of my community was to go to other prov- other provinces, cap in hand, saying, please vote for a change in government, because it's the only way my community is going to get back to work. And, you know, that's something that is unique to uh, incumbents in, in, in our region of the country. Uh, incumbents in other parts of the country, the path to government is through Ontario and Quebec. That's just the reality. Uh, they have to spend time there. And so what ends up happening is, that the voices of our community, you know, I think that there's a lack of understanding of how bad it is, the the desperation 
the anger and the search for a long-term solution. Um, it, it's been very frustrating. So this is an attempt to channel that frustration into a positive, constructive discussion that hopefully will lead to change. And I know like there are people who say, none of this is possible. Well, if this isn't possible, we've got a big problem as a country. And I just, I, I'm beyond the point. I was elected to serve my constituents, not to serve myself. And um, I, I, many of us are, you know, even those beyond that, you know, I'm assuming will will be speaking about this at some point in time. They understand this principle. And Everybody in this country that cares about our confederation, especially what's going on with these blockades, with the rejection of natural resource projects, Mm -hmm. the disaster, like we're just in crisis in this country. And the status quo doesn't cut it. The status quo won't get us out of a crisis. And that's what we try to do. How have the people of Alberta who've communicated with you, who've maybe heard uh, on on radio talk shows who you've... uh, you know, read about and how are the people of Alberta re- reacting, responding to the Buffalo Declaration? We have had a massive and very rapid outpouring of positive support. Uh, we have had thousands of people sign up to the declaration, th- like thousands. I- I'm actually shocked at the response. Um, 99.9% of the correspondents that have come in have been positive. And I kind of knew, like, we knew how this was going to go. Uh, we knew that we would put it out there, and then there would be, you know, um, you know, sort of... I mean, we had been wrote, we even wrote in the structure of the document what we expected the naysayers to say, and it's funny how that script has just gone. But I can't believe the outpouring of support. And it's this. It's like somebody has finally said what's needed to be said, which is, we need, to, we need to have structural change. And okay. this is not to say that other people haven't been doing that. You know, the document complements the effort, uh, for example, in my province of Premier Kenny with the Fair Deal panel, but it also acknowledges that this conversation can't just happen at the provincial level and it shouldn't just be up to provincial governments to, you know, again, Michelle, it happen hand to Ottawa. Let me, I have two more questions for you. Um, sure. What's, what kind of support do you have inside the Conservative Party and then specifically inside the Alberta caucus of the Conservative Party. Sure, I'll say this. My I speak very highly. All of my colleagues uh, in Alberta have been fighting hard on these issues. Um, I think you know many of them share the sentiments. I don't want to speak on behalf of any of them because that's not right. Uh, but many of them certainly understand the acutely the crisis that are facing their constituents. Um, and that's why the document itself started. It said this is a this is an open document. We expect people to add to it, to challenge it, uh, to sign on to it in later days. But I mean, look, um, a discussion has to start somewhere. And I've been in politics long enough that I know that if there isn't a group of people that puts a stake in the ground and puts something out there, that it it takes a long time for movement. Is and it is it is it fair that, is it fair then to say that it's you four now? And you're looking for and hoping for and expecting to have more support from within the party. Yeah, and, and again, I want to emphasize that. And I'm not saying the four, I'm not suggesting your four voices aren't relevant. Yeah, no, 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 no. And, and I guess what I want to say is I also don't want to say that this is the be all and end all, but it's a starting point with mm-hmm. the structure, right? Like I know many of my colleagues have been fighting hard, um, but the structure of this document is not meant to be, you know, a panacea. It's It's meant to say, Okay, here's where this is a this is kind of a 
a laundry list of everything that we've heard. Okay. Now let's start talking about it. And I think some colleagues will, you know, I, I look forward to talking with them. I think that, uh, and, you know, many of them have seen it um, even ahead of time. And uh, I think it's, it's a positive starting point. Let me ask you um, one more. Let me ask you one more question. Let me ask you one more question. You know what's stuck in my mind, and I haven't been able. I mean, it's constantly when I think of Alberta, and you know, I'm very empathetic toward Alberta. If you listen to the show, you know that. And you and I have had lots of conversations. What sticks in my mind is the 150th anniversary, of the birth of this country, and Trudeau acknowledging all the provinces, and the one province he did not mention was Alberta. Then later he jumped up on the stage and he made some sort of feeble excuse for not. I thought that was with intent. Now, that aside, it's, that's just a small comment of mine. If nothing changes, and we have 30 seconds for your answer, if nothing changes, then what? Well, we're not there yet because the document was meant as a starting point to say, here's the stuff that needs to change. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's irresponsible to deal in that hypothetical because that belies a you know, just a, a complete pessimistic outlook on, you know, the hope of Fair sustainability enough. of our confederation. Th- this document was not designed to jump to a hypothetical. It was designed to put structure, uh, to have a, a, okay. a, a really clear a- effort to change the status quo. And we'll deal with that in the future. But I'm, I'm, I want to start on the side of optimism and hope, because if not, we've got a very big problem in this country. Yeah. Okay. That, but that question has to be asked. Um, of course. Based on what what we know now and what you've put forward, that question does need to be asked at the end of the interview. It should sh- be asked. It should be asked, it and it has be been. Asked. But and I appreciate you coming on, and I'm sure we'll have many more opportunities to talk about this because Alberta does need a better reality in this country than it's been Our receiving. Our country needs a better reality. It affects everybody. Okay. Thank you, Michelle. Take care. Good talking to you. Rail blockades. What does one of Canada's most respected experts on Indigenous matters say about the blockades? Um, BC hereditary chiefs and the federal government response. Well, last weekend, our guest described Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's intervention in the rail blockings as timid. And uh, I've spoken uh, with Professor Ken Coates many times over the years. University of Saskatchewan served at universities across Canada and the University of Waikato in New Zealand. He's known internationally for his work on Indigenous affairs, has worked as a consultant for Indigenous groups and the governments of Canada, New Zealand, and Australia, as well as the United Nations. And uh, one of his books is Treaty Peoples, Finding Common Ground with Aboriginal Canadians. I also tweeted out a link to the professor's book. Professor Coates, thank you very much for coming back on the program. Uh, when you said last weekend that the, premier, the prime minister's uh, intervention has been timid, I got a tremendous amount of response to that. Uh, as we look at the last week in the developments, is there anything in Mr. Trudeau's actions, positions, words he said, including the barricades must come down, which causes you to alter that assessment somewhat? Um, maybe a tiny bit, but quite frankly, not a very great bit. Um, he said those things and then actually has not proceeded very quickly. Um, and so I think people who are expecting great things from the Prime Minister, this being one of his most important files, as he said repeatedly, uh, would be disappointed. Um, uh, he says he's drawn a line in the sand. That's not his words, but it seems to be suggested we've gone far enough. But people are still sort of waiting for action. Um, so I think it's, it remains it remains uh, timid. 
uh, it's, it's disturbing. Uh, one of the things that bothers me is the backlash, not just against the protesters, but against indigenous peoples, is getting stronger all the time. Uh, comments on radio programs like yours from time to time, and comments on you know newspaper stories or TV stories or whatever are getting getting harsher. Um, and I worry very much that the, this kind of response will escalate in the in the in the times to come. Uh, this is a really really important issue for Canada. This is just not even about coastal gas link. It's not even just about um, you know pipelines or energy development generally. It's morphed into something much much larger. And we're getting a small response to a big set of issues. How big is it? Uh, really large in a very important series of ways. So just to enumerate a few things, um, you can start off with questions of national unity. Uh, the anger in Western Canada is profound. Uh, the response in Central Canada to the problems in Western Canada is noted, and people are getting very, very frustrated with that. Um, Quebec gets much faster responses to its concerns than Western Canada does over something this important. Um, it's important to the economy. We've lost at least uh, probably $100 billion of investment um, in the oil and gas sector over the last three or four years. Uh, that could get even higher, and there's every billion dollars is hundreds of jobs and, and, and community support for, for years to come. Um, it's important because we've, we're, we're turning up the temperature on Indigenous uh, governance and Indigenous sort of rights generally, when we could have actually used this situation as a reason to celebrate very substantial Indigenous engagement in the resource economy. In other words, we've gone from one of the great success stories in Indigenous involvement in, with Canada as a whole um, to having a very, very tiny number of people turn this into a conflict over the future trajectory of Indigenous rights. Um, there's been other major issues relating to Indigenous governance, you know, who gets to make decisions, how do these things unfold. Um, we've got some very serious structural issues around the economic future of the country. Um, people who think this is a small issue, um, if it, in fact these projects don't proceed, will notice in the next four to five to ten years a very substantial reduction in resource revenue coming to the government of Canada and, and, and several provinces uh, with implications for programs, for health care, for uh, government services, for education and things of that sort. So the problem here is that it's become a sort of a whole combination. This is like a protest stew rather than one issue. It isn't one issue, one community. Um, it's about climate change issues. Are we really serious about this? Are we not so serious about it? It's got major economic implications. It's got serious questions about democracy. You know, who's in charge of the country? Um, you know, democratic leaders? Uh, and I think this is the comment I hear most often, um, is that people are very, very upset about the, uh, the inability of the government of Canada to contain this, this controversy and to put it in a very different perspective, um, to make it into you know, addressing the actions of a very small number of people. Um, one wonders about the future of democracy if any small number of people who want to sort of really protest against the government just shut down railways, railway, shut down highways, uh, go to civil disobedience, shut down subway systems. Uh, Canada, it's easy to shut countries down when the rule of law disappears. Yes. What about uh, something I've heard repeatedly, and I've seen in emails, and particularly today, that this really is a First Nations issue, that hereditary uh, chiefs versus the band councils, that it really should be the, up to the, to the band councils to sort things out with the hereditary chiefs and the band councils to take some uh, preemptive uh, positions and say, look, we signed on to this, we want this pipeline, we're in favor of it, and we're going to be very public about that should that happen. Uh, it 
should, and in fact it has. We, the band councils and First Nations who were in support of the projects have been speaking out increasingly. Uh, we've had some hereditary sub-chiefs uh, of the Wet'suwet'en people at, at considerable um, discomfort to themselves. They right. don't want to you know, criticize their hereditary chiefs. It's an important cultural role uh, within within uh, Wet'suwet'en society. Uh, they don't want to come out in, in opposition to them, but they've done that with great courage. Um, so we, we know we know what they've said. We know the twenty First Nations along the corridor. Uh, so are they? Are they? Are they, Professor? I'm sorry to interrupt, Professor Coach, but are are they just not getting are the band councils and the people in favor of the of the pipeline and in favor of TMX? And if the frontier tech frontier mine is approved, in favor of that, are they just not getting enough coverage, enough enough uh, enough enough time? Well, it's interesting. In media. You know, what, you, what you have behind the, the protesters, the pipeline protesters in particular, is a very, very well-organized media machine. Um, it comes out of the environmental movement, is well-funded. They have people on the ground who are professionals in this. They use social media extremely well. They can make a very small protest seem like a very big protest. They get headlines all around the world because they have their own media and a lot of their own material to sort of circulate. So, so that message is getting out. The, on the chief side... You know, that's not a coordinated group of people across the country who are in favor of resource development and oil and gas pipeline construction. You know, they're individual people. Um, you can find examples of many of them speaking out. If you haven't heard Crystal Smith, who is the um, chief counselor for the, for the Heisla First Nation, uh, you just have, don't really understand the depth of the anger and frustration in First Nations about these protests. She's an extremely articulated and talented individual who has enormous, enormous leadership capabilities. Um, we don't see her on the news every night because that's not her job. And they don't, do not have trained communications people in large numbers who are trying to sort of change the agenda on a national scale. So it's kind of an uneven conflict in that, in that regard. But they are speaking out. We know what they, they think and we know what they say. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're not listening. I think the problem there is on the listening side. You ask the question about, about whether who should decide this. Ultimately, of course, it's a First Nations issue. Um, they have to decide in a formal and, and legal sort of process. Um, the hereditary chiefs have the right to assert their authority. Uh, there is an unresolved and a serious and a significant unresolved issue here about their authority. But that has to go through proper channels. It has to have community endorsement. So the communities, the what's and communities, have not, in a clear and unequivocal way, endorsed the position of the hereditary chiefs. Um, how they understand the situation is very different than how the band chief council and the people at large understand the situation. So that raises the question of why do we not know that? The court, the court case upon which the hereditary chief's authority is based is a quarter of a century old. You know, there's a land, modern land claim process going on up there with the Wet'suwet'en. as a six-stage process with the government of British Columbia through the B.C. Treaty Commission. They're at stage four. They're in the process of resolving this through sort of legal and negotiated means. So We've got some progress going on. This is a superheated one, largely because of the engagement of the uh, climate change activists, uh, the anti-pipeline groups generally, and the whole sort of just general ethos, in particular in British Columbia, around the climate change debate. So we've let it get out of control. We let it go too long. Um, we haven't sort of brought forward the indigenous folks who have some really powerful thoughts on this, and I agree with you that we're not hearing those in anywhere near the level 
that we're hearing from yeah. a very small number of protesters. Yeah. Professor Coach, thank you very much. This is a very, very, it's a critical mass issue for this country because it build, these situations build on themselves, and the next one is going to be bigger than this one because opportunity has presented itself to the very well-organized people that you just mentioned. And we look at our economies in trouble and uh, the democratic processes in this country are now under duress. Uh, we, we need leadership, and uh, let me go back to the word you used. We have timid leadership in Ottawa, and that's just not enough. And we have Trans Mountain Expansion Project sitting in the offing yes. with many of the same protesters saying, you ain't seen nothing yet, and that bothers me. My good friend Michael Zweigstra is with us, Manitoba high school teacher. He's been a guest on this program for years. He's the author of Sage from the Stage and What's Wrong with Our Schools, public speaker, op-ed writer for the Epoch Times. And I received an email from Michael um, last night. Michael, thanks for coming on the show, and you have a point of view about uh, several of the teachers' unions, one in British Columbia, two in Ontario, and positions they've taken. Share that with us, please. Well, I sure do, and thanks for having me on again, Roy. The uh, uh, the British Columbia Teachers' Federation and uh, the Ontario Secondary School Teachers' Federation and the Elementary Teachers' Federation of Ontario have all put out statements uh, either through social media or on their websites in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs, which basically means that these teachers' unions have essentially taken the position that they support uh, or certainly appear to support the illegal blockades that are that, that are occurring. And what really bothers me about these solidarity statements and the, reading through them is that they're expressing solidarity with the hereditary chiefs, but what about the elected band council chiefs, all 20 that have signed on uh, supporting the coastal gasoline product project? What about all the people of the Wet'suwet'en and the area that have expressed strong public support for, for this project? And uh, really bothers me that uh, the teachers unions that some of them anyway are putting out statements that oversimplify this situation that take a particular side and really undermine the important role that teachers have at providing multiple perspectives to students at providing balance and these types of social justice statements uh, really undermine the work that uh, the teachers are trying to do every day you know, just the idea of two million uh, Ontario students being out of school on Friday and every classroom being inaccessible to them because all the teachers were striking is so disturbing uh, on, on so many levels. What's being said among teachers in Manitoba? I, I, I know you can't talk to all of the teachers, but what sorts of dialogue is going on? Well, m- most teachers that I know have no interest in uh, in, in going on strike or, or being out of the classroom. We want to be we want to be with students. We want to be working with students. And the reality is, is that there's often a disconnect between where grassroots teachers are at and where union executive leaders happen to be at. And so, you know, when you look at, for example, the uh, you know the British Columbia Teachers Federation is one of the prime examples. You go to their website. I mean, they've got all kinds of really radical positions that they take. I mean, just as a, an example here, on their Peace and Global Education section of their website, the very first link they provide as a recommended source is Press TV, which is an Iranian-owned television station controlled by the Supreme Leader of Iran. And this station is notorious for conspiracy theories, anti-Western bias, hostility to Israel, you name it. What in the world is the Canadian Teachers Union doing recommending that television station as a good resource for peace and global education? Most teachers don't think that that would be a good resource, and yet there it is, prominently on their website. 
Certainly not something if I had kids in school that I'd want them to be directed to. In the 30 seconds we have left, and that's literally what we have, what's the dialogue in the classroom with your students? Is it talked about at all? Oh, certainly. And, uh, and what I've certainly tried to do is I provide, uh, you know, we watch news clips, we watch interviews, we, we take a look at news stories. I do my very best to provide more than one perspective. Uh, and so, uh, you know, when there's cases where there is more than one person in an interview and you can hear the multiple perspectives, I do that as much as possible okay. and let students come up to the, come to their own opinions based on the information that's out there. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.